You need to identify what is the value for the consumer. And then once you identify it, uh, you can uh, uh, define how technology enables you to generate the value because effectively without technology, it's difficult uh, to still work on good relationships because they become very expensive in terms of uh, training, uh, in terms of deployment, uh, in terms of execution. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we're joined by Paolo Saroni. He's a trailblazer in the world of finance and technology. He shares a remarkable journey, insights, experiences, unveiling the nuances of banking within fintech and within the platform economy. From risk management methodologies to the power of AI, we explore the fusion of finance and technology through Paolo's unique lens and stories. Welcome, Paolo. It is just my pleasure. Can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? I presume the audience is well aware about the work of Dante Alighieri, the Italian writer and poet uh, in the early Renaissance. He wrote The Divine Comedy. And The Divine Comedy is a story of this man that goes through hell, purgatory, and heaven. And my, my, my life uh, in business is basically the same. I started in the hell of banking, in the late 1990s, I was head of uh, quantitative risk management. And, you know, you see all the possible things uh, that banks can do. So I've seen them all, even those that you haven't seen in your life. And then in 2008, I started to repent myself. So I became a fintech entrepreneur. I opened a joint venture, a small company in Frankfurt, in Germany, where now I reside, to basically develop uh, digital wealth management solutions. Now, entrepreneurship is like purgatory. You have to suffer a lot, but you want to go somewhere, right? That's why you do it. So a lot of mistakes, a lot of uh, good stories. And then in the end, uh, this small company was bought by IBM in 2013. That's when I got into the heaven of exponential technologies. You name them all, quantum computing, artificial intelligence. But if you like, uh, in this journey from hell through purgatory into heaven, I learned that technology is not God. What matters is to understand uh, the human being. Because we do something like uh, fintech innovation or banking transformation because we want to find a way to better serve communities, uh, individuals, and ecosystems. And that's so reflected uh, in my literature. I think I have uh, a very distinctive uh, positioning in terms of uh, discussing technology through business model transformation with uh, the human being at the center of everything. And when I say human being, I really mean the human being and not the client. Because the client is someone you want to sell to. The human being is someone you want to partner with. No, oh, there you go. There you go. Super. So what was your career path you were hoping for? Um, and what were you maybe planning to do when you'd left school? Well, I started uh, studying uh, economics uh, and business administration. And I do remember there was something that uh, concerned me at the time. I graduated with full marks uh, in financial market. And I remember I studied the asymptote of information that basically explains uh, how intermediaries share information on financial markets uh, and around broadening the economy. And I did not understand it. And it took me 20 years to figure out that uh, I did not understand it because it was not explained to me the right way. So I had to redefine the concept of the asymptote of information, which is very important because everything that banks and financial market institutions do is to serve individuals in the very end. Even pension money is not institutional money, it's retail money. And the asymmetry information is uh, basically the way people relate uh, 
to the uncertainty on financial markets, uh, uh, pretending uh, that uh, somebody knows too much, the banker, but they don't know that much because nobody knows the future. And it's the feeling of knowing too little because individuals uh, think they don't have enough information. In reality, they need to be enough sober to make uh, uh, reasonable financial decisions. Now, in this uh, context uh, in which someone pretends to know too much and someone believes they know too little, you have banking intermediation. Now, everything in terms of uh, the value of technology is to help these two sides of the game to be reconciled and to be, if you like, more equal and more aligned. And that is what uh, generates uh, new value. So I carried that, that uh, passion in terms of understanding the way human beings make decisions in finance that was not convincing me the way I was explained about that uh, at the very beginning of my career when I left university. And I carried it through risk management, uh, quantitative methods, entrepreneurship, uh, and uh, now in IBM uh, into my total leadership perspective. And uh, what is my role of IBM in IBM now? I'm the global research leader in banking and financial markets for the Institute for Business Value, which is the IBM Thought Leadership Center. And what I do is basically to understand which are the business models that can basically work uh, understanding the way individuals effectively make decisions to access uh, financial services opportunities uh, and leverage them with the technology. So all of these basically gets together. And I think this uh, theoretical perspective is essential because what banks have to do now is a copernical change. It's like uh, we, you were producing uh, electricity with a carbon plant and now you want to use a nuclear plant. You want to change theory, don't you? <laughs> So what I thought is that uh, there was a hole in the system, also in the community. There was not a new theory that would uh, uh, let people understand uh, their business action to be more grounded. And that's what I basically created, which is then the core of uh, my latest uh, bestseller, Banks and Fintech on Platform Economist. Positive theory, theory that becomes business models. So looking back then, Paolo, what, what would you say has been your career-defining moment? I think it was the risk management back then. I had uh, two opportunities. I was living in London after I graduated in Italy. I moved to London for a couple of years. I did some uh, research for a professor at London Business School. Uh, at the same time, I was paying my, uh, my studies, uh, being a chief caller for uh, the car cancellation services of American Express. So mm -hmm. that's where I started. Uh, you learn a lot about behavior of finance and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, the way people uh, services there. I had these two options. One was to be equity analyst for um, a blasonated firm, Luxury Goods, Milan, Paris, London, New York, that's what I was saying. And the other one was to create the risk management architecture methodology for the largest Italian bank at that time. And I thought that I was more grounded into the well risk management perspective than equity analysis. And I blessed that decision because when, if you were a risk manager in the 1990s, you could really see it all because everything was, was happening at the time. It was the age of financial innovation. And most of that innovation was not uh, well substantiated, was not really done uh, in favor of the client. It was more like a way of, uh, if you like, embedding fees uh, into financial intermediation. And I learned a lot. And now that I see the wave of fintech innovation, I think that uh, it's very similar. Not always innovation is there to the benefit of the client, although we all say that it is for them. So that experience enables me, if you like, that to compare and contrast, to be a bit more sober in my 
judgment when it comes to applying technology to financial services. So I am very happy that that moment happened when I chose. I couldn't be better rich or I have a well from risk manager and that's my history. What would you say then has been your proudest moment from a professional perspective? I think literature is my proudest moment. I started writing when I joined IBM. Um, at the time, IBM was looking for thought leaders. I asked more or less what is a thought leader. So they explained to me about a concept. It was not really about writing also articles, being present and available. And so I said, can I write books? And the reason, and they said yes. So the reason is because I thought uh, I had now the chance of expressing myself. And uh, while writing, I'm not only saying what I think, I'm also researching at the same time. Mm. So every book I wrote, I bought five in seven, eight years, uh, was uh, a research project uh, in a way of giving back to the community to get the feedback. So all of my previous four, before getting into my latest, thanks to the tech of platform economies, uh, were uh, projects that enabled me to shape my, my perspective and mindset. Now, every um, book is a project, uh, is like uh, giving birth to, to babies. Uh, and, and so these are, uh, if you like, my, my proud moments. Uh, there will be many others, right? And, but, but I think it's a better moment because I got a lot of interesting feedback from the community. I'm typically very accessible, though it's very demanding in terms of uh, personal time. But when I get that feedback of people asking, right, and informing me about their, their thoughts and me responding, that is enriching a lot. It's a relationship that you have uh, with uh, the product community. So, so these are my proud moments. And, and this, this latest one has been number one bestseller in banking books on Amazon. As some, sometimes competing uh, with my friend Brad King's uh, Bank 4.0. And uh, so I adore Brad, but I forward of, uh, of this latest book. So I thought, yes, yes, that's a, that's a good thing to, to be recognized and uh, to be appreciated. Uh, fabulous. So uh, let's move on to our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So, Paolo, um, look, you've covered a, um, a lot of um, financial research um, to get to see and hear a lot of the changes in the industry. Can, can we start with you telling us a bit more about your latest book, Banks and Fintech on Platform Economies? Well, this is a, a strategy book that means... Uh, it is not uh, discussing at the moment. Uh, it's understanding what is already happening and looking at uh, how financial systems will have to reposition in the fourth industrial revolution, which is a data revolution, that means a platform revolution, in order to resolve uh, the weaknesses uh, that were exposed uh, uh, during the global financial crisis and haven't been resolved uh, yet. In essence, it looks at the, how the business model of banks uh, can be more uh, economically sustainable in a way that the clients as well uh, receive more value that they are willing to pay for because they recognize the value of the financial institution. I, I want to remind everybody, it all started in 2008 uh, with the Fort Lehman Brothers. And in 2009, Alan Grispan was heard uh, in front of the Senate committee in the US uh, to explain uh, why the financial system was collapsing. Now, Alan Grisman was at the time the chairman of the Fed. He's at the origin of the so-called Fed put, that means the intervention of the central bank to save the economy. That also means a save Wall Street, so lowering interest rates, for example. 
And Alan Grisman told uh, the Senate Committee of the U.S. that they found a flaw in the model. And the um, chief of the committee said, what do you mean you found a flaw in, in, in the reality? No, no, no. He said, what is a model? A model is a, an ideology, a conceptual realization, a idealization of how the world works. And I found a flaw in our thinking. And I'm compelled by the fact that it seemed to work for 40, 50 years. It doesn't work anymore. And I don't know what to do with it. Now, we're still there into that uh, um, um, erroneous model that does not allow our financial system and our economy to go back to be more inclusive while generating growth, resolving problems for individuals, and instead is uh, still more and more exclusive. Central banks cannot cope with macroeconomic conditions. They, they try to save the world, but now they are trapped into high inflation that they generated by lower interest rates, so on and so forth. So now... I thought these banks and fintech complete economies need to start there to understand which are the real elements that they need to be considered as an ecosystem made of central bankers, regulators, and financial institutions in order to uh, mend the foundations of the financial system to be more economically sustainable. And once that is defined, we can build on top of that the strategies, that means the business models that allow banks to be profitable while generating more value for the individuals, the clients, and the ecosystems. And these business models cannot be found in the previous way of thinking. That is very linear thinking. Uh, the manufacturers, the distributors, and clients needs to be found in a platform economy because the fourth industrial revolution is uh, a platform revolution. And that's where I've identified these two elements, uh, contextual banking and conscious banking platform strategies, which you already see in action if you pay attention to what uh, Many banks are doing worldwide that basically distill how banks can transform resolving the underlying uh, like, um, problems of uh, the previous way of thinking about economy, excelling into the future of financial services. So contextual banking means opening up to insert yourself into non-banking ecosystems to generate value outside your banking borders. And conscious banking instead means transforming from a distribution channel of products into an advisory mechanism that helps people to resolve holistically their business, their personal, their uh, familiar or financial problems. So Paolo, apart from the fact that we started with Dante, which is another where I expected to start a conversation around the financial services industry, which is interesting. I think what you've just said resonated with me, and, and, and you can tell me if I've got this wrong. But I think you, you summarized it so eloquently in that I think when people look at financial services, the financial services system, they look at it in the, in the smallest definable component and, and try to address the smallest definable component. They don't look at the sum of the parts. They don't look at whether it be the model, the method, the aggregate of all these things. But actually, what you've described is it's wrong as a as an overall entity. It's it's suffering through changing expectations, changing the industry, change forced on it by the economy, change forced into it by regulation, central banks, customers. And whereas I think a lot of organizations really try to sort of hit one thing, actually what you described to then, I think, or what I heard is you have to look at the whole before you look at the component parts, and then you have to go back to the whole to check that it's actually still valid. Yes, it means going back first principles, like put it this way, the economy is a platform. 
you should not forget that. Okay, society is a platform where you operate. Even politics is a platform. Financial services are a platform. So all of these platforms need to interact. But typically, we don't think platforms. We think very narrow or very linear models, right? And it is that change in perspective that enables us to understand why the financial services platform is not working as it should and the economy is not working as it should. Now, we are simplifying a little bit, but uh, financial services are essential for the well-functioning of liberal economies, and they're needed also by authoritarian states. So I believe that resolving uh, the intricacies uh, and the deficiencies uh, of uh, the financial system would ignite uh, uh, those positive network effects that also enable the economy to start functioning uh, in a better way, in a more inclusive way, also in the Western world, because financial services are, if you like, holistic cross and touch every point of uh, personal life uh, and business life. And why is that? Because if you think about money, money is there for the survival of uh, the individual. If we didn't have uh, money, I would be in Germany growing potatoes. Uh, you would be in the UK still growing your potatoes. Some of my Italian friends would be growing their tomatoes. It will be difficult for us to interact. But now that we have money, I can have a work. I can move around easily. I can meet you maybe in person, maybe on WebEx, so on and so forth. And we lost that uh, understanding of uh, the real reason for money to be there. By understanding that uh, enables us to identify the value of money and financial intermediation. And if we identify the value correctly, we can digitalize that value. Otherwise, uh, we don't digitalize uh, anything that can basically have a positive impact uh, on our society. And so that's why I thought that we had to redefine, uh, if like, the foundations of financial services, thinking platforms instead of thinking uh, 1900s uh, linear businesses. Uh, and that would not only address uh, the issues that haven't been res resolved uh, after the uh, uh, start of the global financial crisis, but we can also have a positive impact beyond the financial ecosystem into broader ecosystems that basically need financial services to function uh, in, in better ways. You've raised a whole host of different questions here, which is back to the, you know, you, you need banking, you don't need banks per se, so you need a platform to bank. Yes, but I can say uh, Bill Gates uh, was uh, wrong, or I say partially wrong because he's a billionaire. So <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to be wrong when you've got when you're a billionaire. He <laughs> said that people don't need banks, uh, they need banking, very much so. But people also need bankers. So we need to understand that not everything can be digitalized, taking the individual off the equation. Maybe the individual can be augmented, leveraging some technology like artificial intelligence or visualization of mobile, but uh, the relationship is the core of everything because the relationship is how people make uh, the most complex financial decisions facing an uncertain future and a need of purpose. And you see continuously every time uh, fintech or banks try to completely eliminate the human being from the relationship, they didn't manage to generate revenues or high margins uh, the way they expected. Now, sometimes uh, margins needs to be discussed, okay, because sometimes uh, they are not necessarily fair. So there's another issue here to be positioned. For example, if you leverage FOMO, maybe you can generate margins, but that's not something that I advocate. But essentially, an economically sustainable margin also requires uh, relationships. Now, 
Uh, let me explain to you this element with an example. Think about a large banking group is made of uh, four different pillars. Without, we might forget a few, but is payment, uh, is lending, uh, is investing, uh, and is insurance. Okay. Now, I, I, I mentioned them in order of the asymmetry of information. You see, we go back to the very beginning. That means how difficult it is for an individual to understand the value proposition because it's linked to a high level of uncertainty they have to deal with. It's nothing to do about how much information you have. It's about the fact that there is a symmetry between you and the future that they cannot forecast. So now that also tells you the consumption model of individuals from demand-driven, you can decide by yourself, or offer-driven, you need to get into an intermediation to make a decision. So payment is very symmetrical in terms of uh, the discussion about the future, and uh, it's very demand-driven. It's convenient for you to tap and go. You buy the Gucci bag without thinking, maybe you, it's the time to buy, right? But it's, it's easy for you to board. So there's no surprise that the biggest unicorn, the unicorns in FinTech started in payment, the PayTech, because they could scale in volume. Now, the problem they had, however, is that around the world, the margins of payments are diminishing. Not at the same speed we expected, like in the US, they remain pretty sticky compared to what happened in Asia. But the trend is for those margins to go down. So you cannot be an hyper business. You need to be an uber business, right? To make it happen. So, so that you will see the difficulty of running at scale when margins are declined per transaction. But that is where it gets to the unicorns. Then you have lending. Lending is still fairly symmetrical in the sense that I give you money. And with the money, you can buy something, right? So the future is simplified in that respect. However, sometimes uh, you need to make decisions uh, that are more complicated because you have to uh, buy a big house, right? Or, uh, or a bigger car. Now, what is the problem with lending? Uh, and you see what happened with, in a moment, I explain Goldman Sachs with Marcus or, or others uh, like uh, the Vanopel later pro providers. Um, uh, if I tell you to go to my website at thisrunning.com and click on the first image, I'm telling you that uh, I will give you also £1,000, uh, zero interest rates, which today is a lot, uh, zero commissions. Uh, you can give back the money to me whenever you want. I'm sure that uh, you're going to do that. But you know, there's many IBMers listening to this conversation and I know their salaries. So I know that I would also have to deal with a credit risk problem here, right? <laughs> and that's what happens with many of those guys that tried to create a clan base uh, providing unsecured loans. So they didn't think about risk management. They don't mm -hmm. think about that the credit is not something that you measure today, it's beyond the cycle. Retail banking is brutal, it's difficult because it's linked to the level of interest rates and to the behavior of people through the economic cycle. So Goldman Sachs thought of doing that with Marcos. They didn't understand where they were in the cycle. They thought technology could solve the old business without thinking of his management the right way, which is surprising to me. So you know what they had to do? They had to take Marcos and put it inside well management, somehow shield it, right, in order to reposition it because the portfolio of underlying clients were not performing, of course, as they were expecting. When you go into investing, which is the third, that becomes more asymmetrical because nobody knows about the future if the Tesla stock would go up or would go down. Example, go back to my website, thepeacerun.com, click on the second image, and now you will give me 10,000 pounds that I will invest into more the portfolio made of 50% European stocks and 30% US stocks and 20% stocks from China, but not Chinese company Guangdong because they pollute and we are all ESG, right? Now I'm sure that you're going to my LinkedIn profile 
and checking, is it through the Paolo Wolves manager? Is it through the reward he wrote books on portfolio management and optimizations for support? So there is a distance. So you need to compensate the distance uh, in a way that uh, you start believing that I really do a lot, more than do. So there is a trust in me. So that we make a decision. Okay. So then you see that uh, it's difficult to do that uh, purely on mobile. There's a reason why the robot advisors uh, did not grow as they expected. I clearly defined that in my second book, FinTech Innovation, from robot advisors to goal-based investing and communication, where I identify those elements and the need to have a relationship in between uh, to help individuals scale up. We saw it already in the 90s uh, with the dot-com bubble. All of those trading lines uh, that did not understand the value of relationships, building brokerage solutions, uh, and portfolios basically closed down, right? The others moved forward. They were still there because human beings did not change that much. But then the fourth is insurance, which is typically the last in the game. You see those regulation because insurers deal with the most extreme of the concept of uncertainty, right? So it's really low probabilities. And, uh, and, and therefore, it is very complex there to eliminate the intermediary. Um, you see, for example, when you think about the car insurance, even though car insurance is compulsory, still many require a broker in order to make their decisions. Uh, there's a reasoning that I'm also providing, not just in the literature, but in my last research paper on embedded finance through IBM that I will invite you to read because it's, it's valuable. But for you to understand this in a nutshell, I give you this example. I would love to sell Matthew life insurance because, you know, guys, Matthew is going to die. <laughs> now, I'm sure Matthew doesn't want to have this conversation with ChatGPT, right? <laughs> <laughs> First to have it with me. So now you see the importance of the relationship. So it is more complex, therefore, to digitalize quite a number of insurance businesses. Insurance is very fragmented around products because the relationship is uh, relevant. So then that allows you to understand that when you position technology, in many cases, it's not about replacement of the intermediary, but it's about also an augmentation of the intermediary to do a better job and sometimes a different job from the job those intermediaries were doing in the past. And therefore, it's also a reconceptualization of what artificial intelligence, for example, can do. Yes, it can help somehow to manage a platform, but in many cases, uh, when you think about uh, more value for customers, it's really about helping uh, the relationship to be more meaningful and uh, at lower prices uh, in order to do what the relationship is supposed to do, allow people to make decisions facing fundamental uncertainty, the survival problem, and having purpose, because our time is irreversible. It's from life to death. And without that purpose, we are not really doing anything good for us. I really like that example, because I would argue and have argued many times that the relationship side is no longer required. And, and, and I liken that because when I started my career in a, working in a branch, in a high street branch, as a, as a, you know, as a bank clerk, we would continue, you know, customers would con continue to come and visit the branch manager or the lending manager, talk about what they were looking, what the outcome they were looking for, and then utilizing some, some criteria, including personal judgment, the bank manager would make the decision whether or not a facility would be granted, a loan would be given or otherwise. And over time with data, with credit scoring, with risk profiling, with systems, that became far more automated so that here's the answer. It was delivered by the bank manager. And then it became, here's the answer. It was delivered by the web screen. 
or the app or and and you know and most of the branch managers have now gone and most of the branches have even closed so so i would have argued previously actually i don't believe the relationship piece has any bearing on whether or not you are offered a particular product or not but i think what you've described there paolo is it's actually the other way around the power is actually back with the consumer and it's the consumer that's choosing the relationship rather than whether it's the the banker that's offering the relationship. Well, let me say that this is about the biological micro foundations of financial services. So the way the system works and biological means that, yes, it starts from the consumer, but the consumer sometimes act biologically being unaware of what they're looking for. Right. So that's why they can be easily abused and that's why there can be a regulation around these uh, process to make sure that the weakest link, which is the consumer, is protected. So you need to identify what is the value for the consumer. And then once you identify it, you can define how technology enables you to generate that value. Because effectively, without technology, it's difficult to still work on good relationships because they become very expensive in terms of training, in terms of deployment, in terms of execution. And that doesn't mean that people are not there inside the relationship, but technology will replace the relationship. That means that people in many cases will be there, but need to be there for what matters, right? Not necessarily for the old process. Uh, I can give you multiple examples, but one of these, which is very, very simple, is uh, at the time of my second book on robo advisors, uh, I talked to most of the robo advisors uh, in the world. And I remember this one uh, on the other side of the pond. Uh, that was picking my brain because they said that there's something like a, an 80% drop rate. So people were starting to profile themselves to get into one portfolio, but they were not going to the end, right? So 80% of people that started that did not complete And so I said, okay, just understand that moment of friction and plug in a human conversation. As I told you, I was doing car cancellation and car activation for American Express. So I said, just do that. And you see that we resolve the problem because people need to talk to somebody. They said, oh, but we are a fully digital solution. And I said, but that's wrong. You cannot because the consumers will be able to do that fully digitally. So they did that. And then they told me that uh, the attrition rate was more than half, right? Because they identified the moment where people need to talk to somebody and they could reach out. Now, that's an easy and silly example, if you like, because it's about onboarding. But it works for most of the more complex things that people have to do. And as I said, payment, lending, investing in insurance is where there is today more value on the fees, though they are under attack. Lending seems to be, again, in favor because interest rates are going up. But as I brought the global outlook in IBM beginning of this year, I said the banks don't be complacent because this is not a return to the past. Because those money that can be made on higher rates will have to judge through the economic cycle, which is very complex this time around, way more than it was in the past. So it's not the year end that matters, right? Is there a payment that if you like horizon that needs to be considered? And payment, you can do as much as you can, right? But that would be and will always be a very concentrated, if you like, a marketplace. Maybe it's chopped into different intermediaries right now, but it's not a place for you know, a, a variety of uh, of providers. So, so now then you see uh, the relevance of plugging in the relationship uh, while working on digital to make sure that digital does what digital is uh, supposed to do, okay? But digital may not be capable of doing everything. Having said that, I don't know how the future is uh, evolving. I identified uh, um, two strategies uh, that are contextual banking and conscious banking that correspond to 
the two drivers uh, that needs to be uh, augmented for banks of fintech uh, to uh, crack the code, which is information and communication. And information is basically uh, the information inside the core banking of the institution. Uh, there is uh, transactions from payments as well as the profiling of individuals for adverse selection and especially when the interest rates were low you could see that it's very difficult for banks to uh, pay back shareholders uh, uh, by using uh, core banking information with this that's why even regulators are seeing the importance of open banking so position is it outside to generate value further away from uh, the banking charter in a way the new revenues are generated new value is basically created that also that replenishes uh, the uh, impoverished uh, economic model. But on the other side, you have communication. And communication is uh, really about uh, the intermediation process. Uh, it's typically exerted, as I said, between people. Now, I, I, I like to mention this paper of the European Central Bank, Financial Intermediation with Technology, but so what's new, that also discusses information communication. And the ECB researchers say that it is clear for us that there will be more and more revenue coming from communication, but there's not enough literature yet to understand how that has to work facing the digital transformation. That literature is now available, has been provided. And communication is where uh, you have uh, the language. Now, if I say language, I, I'm sure I triggered you immediately into the large language models, so generative AI, right? That's where I position the value of artificial intelligence into allow communications to operate at scale in different forms. It doesn't necessarily mean replace human communication, but definitely means helping human communication to be more guided through as an industrial process, right? That can scale in front of multiple individuals where up to a certain point you can sell direct yourself and then the individual plugs himself in to have a conversation with the final clients. Having said that, there may be a future when generative AI will be way more stable and powerful to absorb more of that communication process. What I care about is identifying the preconditions by which a certain future can get realized, right? I'm not just selling flying cars or, <laughs> or, or other stuff. And so, so in my literature, you can find those preconditions. So that means if companies, banks, fintech work on those preconditions, they might be able to unlock that value, which is there to be grabbed, but there's work to be done. And that's here it is understood. I was going to ask you a question, actually, about friction and where do you see the friction now? Is it, you know, what's holding the incumbents back? But actually, you've jumped into open banking. And, and, and I think it's more interesting to understand there whether, you know, open banking, you think is kind of, just at the start, in the middle, is it over? You know, is is everything now an API and we can just move on, or or is you know there's the, something more fundamental going on with the open and open platforms and, well, and, and beyond? Yeah, that's linked. So I just mentioned information and communication, and I made them the two axes of the bank innovation quadrant, which is at the heart of banks and fintech platform economies. So the information quotient where you move up in the quadrant is about open banking, open data, open finance, because it means how you connect with the ecosystem also beyond the typical border of a financial institution in order to generate more value. Now, that is where I identify the, if you like, the, 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 the creation of the contextual banking platform strategies, which is about embedded finance. 
So let's identify the friction there and then you see why that matters. So um, it is the opportunity to eliminate the ecosystem friction that makes banking contextualized, right? So that means embedded. Now, every time you need to make uh, a decision in life, typically there's a financial transaction involved, uh, mean paying uh, or getting uh, credit uh, where borrowing money in order to, to make it happen. And sometimes that is a complex decision. And, and you have to go back to the bank, uh, right? You have to think about it. You have to supply a lot of information. So if the bank can reduce the friction that is part of a journey outside banking, where banks participate in the journey just by enabling individuals to complete the process, they will unlock new value because the economy, the ecosystem around them will work more efficiently, right? And more uh, seamlessly. Now, the problem with this is that how do you get paid for the elimination of friction? In fact, the definition of the contextual banking platform strategy is that the opportunity to eliminate the friction makes banking contextualized, that means embedded, to unlock new value. And the world is new value. It's not necessarily transaction value. It's about the capability to participate differently into the ecosystem interplay. That means open banking has been defined by many institutions. It's not enough. Open banking is not about uh, uh, selling APIs uh, or getting API connections uh, on your banking as a service infrastructure, but it's about identifying use cases uh, with partners out there that enable you to participate in your partner's success and therefore defining the incentives uh, and economic rewards uh, in a way that you're bonded together into the common goal of allowing people to achieve their outcomes once they are doing their journeys uh, into a third-party business, which is not typically a financial services business. I uh, released uh, recently uh, two interesting pieces of work. One is embedded finance uh, paper based on uh, 12,000 consumers interviews and 1,000 executives interviews worldwide on what is embedded finance and device remakers, which is a narrative made with 22 executives of banking and non-banking organizations about what they really means to excel in embedded finance, to so move beyond open banking as many conceiving, which is regulation or the entry point. And all of these elements are clearly identified and, and discussed. And I know that all people, bankers and bankers tend to go back to the previous habits, even though they become more innovative, thinking about the future. Now, reminding all of those elements through research, like the one at UNABV for IBM or the literature is important because we need to stick to the principles if you want to see the light of the return on investment uh, at the end of uh, the innovation tunnel. So that's the way you position uh, open banking. At the same time, I mentioned information communication. When you intensify the communication quotient, instead, that you look at the different type of friction. It is now the need uh, to eliminate the knowledge friction. Think about uh, an ESG sustainability investment decision that makes uh, banking, as I said, conscious. That means transparent. Uh, in order to unlock hidden value. Now, here again, words matter. The knowledge friction means that people need to make decisions. That's why in many cases they need relationships. And just picture it this way. The relationship is there to help people biologically to make a decision in which they are reassured, right? That they share the burden with somebody else. You don't want to share the burden with your mobile, but with another person. And that's uh, when it's well positioned, unlocks value, which is inside the relationship. It's just that without technology, that value cannot scale. So here is where you, you understand that the role of technologies like AI and data again is to 
unlock that value of the relationship that uh, is this homogeneous, uh, is not even because many people talk to many clients. Uh, so you need to figure out on how help everyone to get into better conversations where the value is positioned for their decision-making process. And that will allow these people to see the value and pay the fee for accessing the advisory platform. So it's a transformation of banks uh, towards trusted advisory institutions. So you will have embedded finance on one side, trusted advisory institutions on the other side, the transactions is not because you want, but they're less and less remunerative anyway, because margins are priced. And the two, in a sense, basically will coexist and sometimes will overlap to transform the way people pay for value that you've identified, therefore can digitalize it for everybody's benefit. From, to me, this, this leans into perhaps a different sidetrack of conversation because when we talk about value, when we talk about value and we listen to some of our customers, in, and certainly from a technology perspective into the cusp of the business, because it's not always with the business, it's sometimes technology led into a business conversation. Clearly, one of the most topical discussions now is around data. So is around you know, how do corporations create the capability to monetize their data and utilize their data. And FS clearly has a lot of data and how best to use it. What's your take on that? I can give you a perfect example. That is also a personal example in this case. Eh? You will learn uh, through this example that uh, many misunderstood uh, the value of data in the personalization process. Uh, so they thought that through data, they can put the client uh, at the center of a target and hit the client with a marketing bazooka powered by AI. That's not going to work on digital anyway because of the biological way that we relate to financial decision making. So we need to see data differently. Now, data enabling a bank, that's what we typically say, needs to be preceded by something else, which is data, a solid data-driven banking needs to be preceded by data enabling client. And I tell you with this example. I mentioned in my Dante's journey that I went from hell through fintech purgatory into heaven. Yes, I built this small company that was bought by IBM. But before, before I got into hell, I did something else with my brother. I helped my brother in the 1990s to build the Amazon of Italy. Nobody laughs because we really did that. We had a wonderful and slick website. It was called In Trade. We had the payment method by one of the most advanced and modern financial institutions in Italy to basically process uh, all of the transactions we wanted to have. And we had the best products, the best products on earth. Think about it, Italian fashion. I know you guys don't wear it, but Italian fashion. Oh, that's Italian, not British, <laughs> Italian food, <laughs> Italian furniture, and Italian travel. Okay, so the best product, the best web design ever, we did not sell anything. <laughs> it was a disaster. Okay, it didn't work. Now, we made many mistakes, uh, of course, uh, and uh, and that was a good lesson learned, and I appreciate my brother's enthusiasm. But there's something that I really learned that I want to share with you in your audience today because it answers this question. Years after, I was listening to a Jeff Bezos interview, I think on 60 Minutes, that was filmed years before. You are my age, Matt. The, in the 1990s, at the very beginning of Amazon journey, Amazon was primarily selling books, right? Uh, so that's how I got to learn Amazon. And the journalist asked Jeff Bezos, what's Amazon? And Jeff Bezos said, Amazon is not a distribution channel of books on the internet. No, Amazon is not a distribution channel of books on the internet. Now ask yourself the question. 
is a digital bank, is a neo bank, is your financial super app a distribution channel of financial products on mobile? It's the same question. So now, Jeff Bezos, understanding that the journalist was puzzled, said, okay, let me explain to you. He said, these days I'm receiving letters from the publishers. They are complaining because they say I don't understand. And the reason is because he said, I allow the users, so all of us, to post positive and negative reviews. And they say, only post positive reviews so we can sell more. It's a marketing principle, right? Like a good story. And he said that they don't understand. They don't understand because the manufacturers, think about capital markets, the asset managers, right? Are not my client. My client is everybody like us, the users. And the problem of the users is that they come on my solution, his platform, and they cannot touch the book like, I'm doing now, smelling the glue, right? They're looking through the pages. Uh, so basically, they will be there, onboarded, but they are dormant. So now, positive and negative reviews uh, create an element of transparency that generates trust. So it gives them the motivation to act and to do something. Now, two elements that matters here, a little uh, thinking brackets. The heart, the theoretical heart of the banks of the tech economies is the Financial market transparency, theory and principles that unlocks the trust in the right way to operate on a platform that is a bit more disintermediated than the past. Okay. And uh, the second element, of course, views can also be abused. So that's why I always have a regulatory framework uh, and understanding that is to plug around financial services because uh, it's way more complex uh, and damaging when it is abused than what happens on the Amazon platform. But, but if you like, just Bezos focus on the motivation of people, not just to be there, but then to act. And then he added something that was amazing to me. He said, and by the way, my role, he said, is not to be a distribution channel of books on the internet. My role is to advise the clients of which is the best book to buy. So there is the emergence of the trusted advisory platform, clearly easier for Jeff Bezos, more engaging for banks, but that's where you have to strike if you really want to transform a visible banking. And he concluded, only after I resolve the motivation of clients, eh, I plug in other analytics today, we would say machine learning, generative AI, to propose more to the client. So that means it is true that you can data drive a financial institution or a new business. But if you don't make it preceded by data enabling the client, understand how the data can help the clients to be active on the financial services platform, resolving the asymmetric information that we mentioned before, you can start having millions of clients, but it will not generate value for you in terms of business value because they will not be able to make transactions and the cost for making those transactions happen will kill you once again. So, so these are the two first principles that we need to understand. The transparency element, which is the one that creates positive network effects on the platform economy, especially when it comes to financial intermediation and the role of data that is first and foremost to enable the client to act and not necessarily to expose the client to a more refined marketing principle that without the fear of missing out or free money will not work sufficiently. And that's, if you like, is the history of the fintech in the last 10 years. I'm going to ask the question that... I guess, is the most topical question at the moment, which is AI. Everyone talks about 
AI, because that's very topical when they talk about AI, they mean chat GPT more than anything else, because that's accessible to the public. That's what the public see. How do you see the increased interest in AI impacting across banking, banking as a service, banking as a platform? How do you see that? Well, of course, AI became, again, a hot topic because the retailization of AI with ChatGPT, right? But using AI for your own prompt is different than using AI for a business case that needs to be regulated and fair, therefore unbiased and ethical. And I think that banks understand that as well. And as IBM, we ran a CEO study at the beginning of this year where we interviewed 3,000 CEOs worldwide, and uh, we asked CEOs about their priorities uh, and uh, the role of technology to generate value. And when we asked them about technology, comparing different technology elements, uh, like uh, traditional AI, think about a chatbot, or generative AI and, and, and deep learning, uh, compared to other elements being cloud and, and other aspects, while all CEOs, let's say the aggregate across all industries, said that Generative AI is uh, already one of the top priorities to generate value in the next three years. The banking executives, actually, the banking CEOs were a bit more sober. So they still saw the value of more traditional AI than generative AI. And the reason is because they understand that uh, the conversation with the clients is more regulated and needs to be more regulated. Okay. So even in, when you ask them about the examples, uh, while uh, CEOs in other industries like consumer industries are more thinking about uh, marketing, uh, sales, uh, right, outward activities. Uh, bankers are thinking about the security, for example, uh, human resources, those aspects, uh, because still some elements need to be resolved uh, in terms of the communication client. However, that doesn't mean that value cannot be generated now. I'll give you an example. We worked with one of the largest um, uh, payment companies in the world, and they could use uh, large language models to do two things, uh, to uh, basically... Um, quantify and uh, understand the, the complaints much faster than before. So it's an element of automation from, I think it was three weeks to 15 minutes, but then provided information to the customer service in person to augment the relationship. So again, it's not the replacement, but it's the understanding of the role of technology. Something you can stream out, something else This requires a human intermediation in the process, but it can augment it to become more meaningful. So now these cases are happening. What is the issue? The issue is that the technology is not an easy plugin because you need to have uh, a data framework that makes sense. You need to have a process uh, of governance of all the data to create a lineage, uh, to understand the bias, right? And to, to basically interact with, uh, with the data and to continuously maintain and monitor the data, which is uh, sometimes beyond the scope of an individual fintech as well, guys, they are not uh, super funded like uh, some of uh, the, the you know, new, new players, the success players are uh, today, which might position, uh, if you like, uh, um, an advantage uh, in the hands of uh, large financial institutions that uh, will be troubled in terms of economic model, but uh, when logical about how to make investments, uh, could have a competitive advantage because they can deploy more resources into this process. However, without understanding the role of information and communication and how they interact with the platform economy, that value cannot be unlocked. What excites me today is that for many years, we discussed more about information. Information is about the data connections, cloud, the type of technology. We all know about that. And AI was there, but not so much. Now there is a, a, a strong shift in terms of AI for communication. 
That doesn't mean we, we crack the code, right? But you see, as I said, that the communication access is also very, very important. And I think that we are now starting to see more investment in terms of how communication can effectively enable the bank to operate as an advisory platform for the client, supporting this multiplicity of advisory conversations that need to be a bit more systematized. That doesn't mean replaced, that needs augmented. Well, fabulous answer. So, Paolo, conscious of time, is there something that that you think we should have asked you, wish we'd asked you, or something that you want to make sure, oh, actually, whilst we're chatting, I want to make sure I cover this. I think we covered quite a big deal, even though there's more that we could discuss. I hope your audience, which is a work-qualified audience, uh, will feel interested uh, to read more about my work. It's not about selling books. It's about having a different perspective and looking at uh, the financial system at the intersection with other industries and with new ways of thinking is that the intersection of things and the many things happen. And in banks and fintech and private economies, you have plenty of intersections uh, to look at uh, and to exploit. Okay. Well, look, let's, in the interest of time, let's move on. And we move to our crystal ball. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. What do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies, I'll say for 2023 and beyond, and how do you think that will help or hinder financial services? To me, it's an easy strike. We started saying that fundamental uncertainty is at the heart of the problem in finance. That means uh, nobody knows about the future. Knowing about the future would mean being deterministic. I have a formula, I can make a prediction. In reality, everything is probabilistic. Now, a lot of computing methods that we apply today, even uh, leveraging fund finance, tend to be very deterministic uh, in the optimization process. Uh, AI also is fairly deterministic in essence. But quantum computing uh, is uh, de facto a probabilistic method. Uh, so I see uh, the growth of quantum computing uh, from uh, its early stages uh, to the last five years, uh, and the growth is really unprecedented. Uh, now, that is really about uh, technology as we would define it, uh, changing uh, the way we can uh, compute to resolve things that uh, uh, we could not resolve so far, or we never thought about that being capable of resolving. Now, quantum computing, however, is not about replacing everything that uh, we did in the past. It's like uh, if I travel from Frankfurt to New York, uh, I do the first miles uh, on a taxi, that goes through traffic, and then I catch a plane that moves me very fast, provided there's no delays, right, to JFK from Frankfurt Airport. So that's the same. The computers we have today are like the taxi, so they can do important things that are very precise to do. But then we can accelerate uh, with quantum computing to complete the process, uh, taking us somewhere else that was not considered a rich in the past. I think financial services will benefit here as well in the way that my learn how to model reality, uh, remaining open, if like remaining open uh, to the fact that uh, uh, the future is uh, not forecastable as people may want. It's always uh, probabilistic. Uh, we still have to see like the growth of uh, quantum computing in terms of uh, being uh, scalable and stable, as well as use cases to be plugged in, right, to resolve all this, but they're starting to appear. So that could uh, have exactly you know, worth watching. Fantastic answer. Fantastic answer. Um, okay, let's move on to our lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. 
Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lighting round. The lightning round begins now. So this is our fast, fun round. A pass is really okay. But if you do pass, we will probably ask it to you again, either when we meet you in person or we're watching you on stage. Okay. <laughs> so let me start. I'll start with a really nice, easy question, uh, and we'll just try and ask a few. So um, what's your favorite book or movie? I read uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, in multiple languages, uh, in English, of course, uh, in Italian and in German, and uh, I can never have enough. I have to say, did it feel different to read it in the languages? It does, indeed. Uh, first of all, because uh, Italian I can understand, uh, English I can appreciate, uh, and German I have to make an element of interpretation. <laughs> but I read in German at the end, okay, as uh, I also lived uh, a few years in Germany. Um, and when you know the story, there is a complex story, you can more or less understand, you know, the, the, the various elements. So you can appreciate, but it's, it's very um, interesting in a way to read uh, in different languages. I'll give you an example. I wrote all my books in English, but one, I also have it in Italian. And uh, when I did the Italian version, I was not happy with the English version because Italian is way more elaborated. Like, And then I went back and read the English version and I didn't like the Italian version. It seemed to me that it was never going to the point. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Languages have really different uh, ways uh, of uh, coming across. Uh, it's not just about the message per se, right? But it's also the way you deliver the message uh, that uh, somehow is framed into a, a certain, uh, I don't know, space, uh, right? And, and familiar space. So that, that I found very interesting. My question, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time or would you leap into the future? Well, given the promise of climate change, I will go back in time. <laughs> and I'm very curious about uh, the Roman Empire. Yes, as an Italian, uh, I really want to see, you know, what was going on there. Certainly not all gold, wood glitters, but seeing uh, the Roman Empire in action would be very interesting. Great answer. Um, of all the places you've travelled, which would you say is your favourite? Well, uh, I've been uh, travelling a lot to Brazil, in particular when I was a banker. I was also overseeing the management operations of our Brazilian, uh, Brazilian subsidiary, Banco Sudamerica. So we go there very often. And I think it's a very interesting country, huge, right? That you can never have enough, mm. right? You can never see it all. So I have many friends there. So I think it's a good place to, to visit. Who is your mentor or who have you been most inspired by? Well, I have a good friend there. There's a personal relationship. So with another guy, that helped me out in terms of expressing myself because uh, I always tested uh, some of the reasoning and languages with him. He's more of a philosopher, if like, uh, than, than I am. He's, again, uh, he's always a relationship, right? So thinking is somebody, right? The testing and understanding your messages uh, that uh, really matters. I always want to be sober and substantiated. So that also gives you an anchor to make sure that uh, you're not deviating too much. Right, when you express yourself, uh, and especially when, when it comes about uh, discussing, uh, discussing the future. So if you can question yourself all the time, have somebody else question your ideas. That's good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, what piece of career advice do you wish you'd have given to your younger self? <laughs> choose uh, a boss, don't choose a job. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's good for everyone at any point in time in their career. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. Uh, my question, this is always an interesting one. When was the last time you used cash for? Um, I used cash for uh, dining out. And the reason is because, well, I, I don't have this paranoia cash, not cash, right? I use both of them. I remember I did the trip to China, my last one in 2020, at the beginning of the year before the pandemic, where I finally thought of using my Alipay connected to my credit card because I was told by the Alipay friends that uh, now that would be available. And then I couldn't, I brought no cash and no cash. I couldn't find uh, an ATM to withdraw cash. So it was like dramatic because even in the office of IBM, you needed uh, uh, one of the two methods being Alipay or WeChat to get um, uh, food from the vending machine. But the reason I could not use uh, the app is because my bank in Germany refused uh, to recognize Alipay as, uh, as a trusted provider. In reality, they told me the technology was there and I've been traveling in China ever since. So I also learned that a bit of cash in your pocket is, is relevant. Uh, but uh, Germany is amazingly a, a cash society by and large. You can still the signs in, in bars uh, saying, for example, in coffee places, uh, we don't accept cards, right? Uh, you have to pay cash. And then they go to Sweden and they don't even know what cash is, uh, right? Uh, the word might not even exist anymore <laughs> in the dictionary. I think uh, the, the value is, uh, is always in the middle, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So purely cashless society uh, would be an exclusive society. So you need to basically figure out who is uh, the right balance, but there's no doubt that the role of cash uh, in a society is uh, reducing to to the essential, not to the habit. All right. So I'm really looking forward to the answer to this this one. So, oh well, and I think I think your Italian's going to come out in this one. So, if you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be? First of all, uh, there's a difference between ice cream and gelato. Matthew, that's the wrong question. That's what he just said. <laughs> you asked about the flavor and not toppings uh, because I'm eating ingredients. <laughs> Which is an American thing. I'm a vanilla and pistachio. Interesting combination. Very good. Very good. My favourite question to ask, if you have to sing karaoke in a karaoke bar, what song do you pick? <laughs> well, I sing very, very bad, okay? But uh, I would strike with uh, something that works for everyone. I remember that uh, one night uh, I was having dinner in a restaurant in Frankfurt, a very small place, so, you know, tables are one next to the other. It's not that uh, uh, you listen to your neighbor's conversations, but more or less you understand the situation. And there were uh, uh, four business people, okay, two German and two Japanese. They were talking very seriously. It was during the the outdoor at the time. So a very serious conversation, right? That's so very, you know, the Germans can be very formal, the Japanese as well. They have their own politeness and formality. And then at some point, they played uh, a song from ABBA. And they were all hugging and singing. <laughs> so I think it's a good strike because everyone will sing with me and they will not understand that uh, I'm not talented in singing. Well, I like it. 
Okay. I think on that note, uh, thank you, Paolo. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to continuing our conversations from today. Um, How can our listeners learn more about you, what you get up to, your books, etc.? Well, they can do two things. First of all, they can uh, look at my profile on LinkedIn, have multiple conversations there, not be able to get connections anymore because they reached 30,000 connections and LinkedIn blocks it. So I don't know how to resolve that, but I can get followers and I really always respond. So they define me. But also, if you like to look at my more formal research, the IBM.com slash IBV, where I have uh, my research from the IBM Institute for Business Value, you can find me on both places. And then in the, anyway, they converge on social to make the conversation broader and uh, more enriched and meaningful for everyone. Fabulous. Well, we'll make sure to add some those links into our show notes. Like I say, again, Paolo, thank you so much for your time today. It's been very, very interesting to to talk through these with you in person. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Arrivederci. We'll have links to Paolo's LinkedIn website and where you'll find his latest book in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please reach out to us. We're easy to find on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod or our show website at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Please join us again next time and do take care.